Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Let's get into my next guest with a song. Hit it, Joey. is the motivation hanging up the whole damn nation looks like we always end up in a rut trying to make it real that's compared to what by roberta flack the first song on her debut album you can hear the bass on there right an upright bass catchy funky mesmerizing It alternates between foreground and background effortlessly. It's a masterclass in the instrument taught by my guest Ron Carter, who played the bass on the entire album. In a career that spans over five decades, Carter has played jazz, classical, soul, even hip-hop. He's won three Grammys, worked with Miles Davis, Alice Coltrane, Aretha Franklin, Herbie Hancock, Billy Joel, A Tribe Called Quest. I could go on, but I want to leave room for the interview. On Tuesday, May 10th, he will celebrate his 85th birthday in style with a tribute concert at Carnegie Hall. And yes, Ron Carter is still performing. Let's kick things off with a little bit from Carter's latest record, which is called Skyline. It's a trio album with pianist Gonzalo Rubalcaba and drummer Jack DeJanet. This song is called Lagrimas Negras. Ron Carter, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thanks for the welcoming and thanks for the sunshine you brought today. I was listening to your new record and I was wondering, you know, you're 84 years old. You've been doing this for quite a long time. Are there things that you feel like you are better at now than you were 20 or 40 or 60 years ago? Absolutely. What are they? Patience. I've developed enough patience to let my decisions be made on hearing more of the project rather than just enough that's convenient for me to hear. I've developed a higher sense of responsibility in that I understand why people have called me for their project. And I'm very concerned as I've gotten better over the years, can I meet their expectations of me as they have invited me up of the choices they had for their project. I developed a sense of my worth and that I know how much work could sell and I know about the business of it and I've always decided to be the guy who decides my numerical value rather than someone else who dictate that price sheet. And I developed another level of patience which allows me to do what I do understanding that it must help the artist sound better. Give me an example of Something that you've done in the last few years where you think you got a new level of understanding from being patient that you might not have gotten when you were younger. All of them. 
I, mean, I, I would not, <laughs> I, I would not uh, give away that kind of personal commentary on someone else's effect on me or me on them, and have that reflect on just them and I, my relationship, rather than the other. 2,221 people who, <laughs> who have been part of my process. That's not a nice thing to do, and probably like to avoid that kind of step into this whole commentary. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's interesting that when I ask you that question, such a big part of your answer, I mean, you talked about knowing your worth and so forth, but such a big part of your answer was about how you can best complement other people's work, which, you know, I mean, that's a bass player's answer, I guess. But, you know, I don't think there's a lot of people out there who are artists who, you know, after a long career, if you say, what are you better at than ever before? They say, oh, well, getting right what other people need. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Well, that's always somewhere in the equation. But I think, uh, Bass players who really understand their weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, as well as their W-A-I-T, as to how it responds to the band and the band's music, they have a constant reservoir of both of those items. And those who are able to keep their reservoir handy and don't mind dipping into it are those bass players who work the most often with the most wide variety of music that's available. Is your body different now with regard to playing than it was before? My physical body, my emotional body, my bass, I mean, what the that word signed. Yeah, I mean, I think I was thinking of your of your physical body, but I'll take any of the three. Uh, I've learned how to play the bass better, so of course my, my physical body is not taking the kind of weight physical that it had when I was 50 years younger. My patience has grown as well as the weight of that patience. And I think the more I play, the more I'm still interested in and how can I help these guys and gals get better who are in the company. That weight, W-E-I-G-H-T. It's interesting, the, the idea that part of the skill that you have developed is that you are able to do what you want to do physically with the instrument without having to use the force that you once would have had to do to accomplish the same end. That's, that's amazing to me as a non-musician to think of how part of your skill could be uh, about lightening your own load in that way. Well, I, I think, again, back to the broad category of bassists, I think once they understand the weight of each note they play, I, for one, like to develop my bass line so one note is more important than the preceding six because I have constructed my bass line to do just that. If I'm successful, the note that's at the end of this line need not be louder or stronger than the preceding six, but that it's there at an appropriate time makes it weigh a whole lot more and a random choice of notes in the same spot. That makes a lot of sense.
You started playing cello, right? Yes. How did a cello end up in your hands? I walked up to the table and picked up one. <laughs> were, were you looking? I, I know you want a little more expansive answer, but that's kind of a simple answer for a question that's kind of on the table, you know? Sure. Well, I mean, was it like in a school classroom? Yeah, there's a teacher, ultimately the orchestra conductor, came to our junior elementary, elementary school, 10th grade, 10, 11 years old, whatever grade that would be called, and said that she was going to put these instruments on the table as she was doing it. And she said she was going to start an orchestra at this school, and we, you children would be in, the, in being an orchestra and just pick out an instrument that you think uh, sounds like what you want to do for a while. And uh, the child seemed to be the one that I got the most complete sound, however I would define that, at 12 years old. I picked that up and I said, I'll, I'll take this one. I mean, did they play for you Young People's Guide to the Orchestra or something like that? Or no, was no. it a matter of walking up and messing with them? Yeah, walking up and messing with them. I'm not sure at that time, orchestral adults, I would call them, knew that these kids of color would be interested in the, the guide to the orchestra, that piece you just mentioned. Yeah. Why would they want to do that to these young uh, children of color? Hello? Well, somebody was somebody was there. <laughs> I'm on, thinking about guys. what you said. <laughs> I'm still here, I promise. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm thinking about what you said. I mean, somebody's somebody's there to start an orchestra. Of their own, I assure you, of their own volition, of their own desire to have these young kids know what orchestras are. And I'm positing to you that those people who would have the capacity to play samples of the instruments for these young kids who this person is trying to make an orchestra of, it never occurred to them that they would help these kids. And this conductor, who's going out on their own, make the kind of choice that would be valuable down the line. And I'm saying I'm not sure that's changed much in the, in the way that it happens today. Did it sound fun to you? Did it sound exciting to play in an orchestra? As I got older, it did. I mean, uh, I played in orchestra until I was a uh, senior and uh, so I graduated from, from uh, as a uh, graduate school, master's. I played in orchestras until uh, 1962. Whenever I could, I took the job. I loved that sound. I just like being in an orchestra when they do for film scores. I love the sound and how they arranged the music and the players who produced these various sounds that were told to them by somebody else to play these few sets of notes. I love that kind of experience. I'm sorry I don't have a chance to do it much often now. Do you remember how old you were or if you had some experience where you were playing in an orchestra and you thought something other than, look, I played a little bit of music in school and I, I remember thinking, oh, this is hard. So do you remember the point where you were playing and you thought, wow, this is great. I'm not sure I can go that far back in my age category, but I think uh, so I was born in 1937, so probably 1938. I'm not, I, I can answer that kind of question. I did as long as they allowed me to do it. That's a simple answer to a very complex question. When did you switch from cello to bass? January 1955. That's a very specific me memory. <laughs> Well, at the time I was a senior in high school, and uh, at the time the 
school system had these conferences and meetings at PTA meetings and stuff like that. And each of these uh, events would hire music from or ask from the schools in the neighborhood, the music program schools, to um, send some kids over to play some wallpaper music during the course of the conference. I thought that based on my experience and me being observant, I played pretty damn good and I don't understand why I wasn't getting a call for these gigs. I'm looking around one day and there's one bass player who's graduating the fall to January of 55. And being good at math, I realized if I subtract one from one, I have a zero. Or here's my chance to make that zero back to one again. I'm the bass player and I'm still looking at that angle. When you were in high school, was the school orchestra that you played in mostly African-American kids? <laughs> the, that was the answer is no, but I'm surprised that that question comes to mind. I, I just explained, and I'm not trying to be a devil's advocate, but I, I explained to you I was feeling a little left out of the mix, so to speak, and uh, to imply to, to ask, was the orchestra uh, African-American orchestra? I, I, I don't get that connection for me, the, oh, I, what I I assume that you meant that, you know, there were combos being put together to play these things from kids from different schools, and uh, if you went to a school where most of the kids were black, they weren't no, pulling no, you from. No, each school had their own orchestra program or music program. Got it. And each school was responsible for filling the needs of the if they wanted to acquire the thing during the course of one of the missions at the conference, or they wanted a marching band or an orchestra, whatever music program the people were. Responsible for getting the uh, quote unquote musical entertainment for our wonderful high school kids. That high school got the job until the next one came around, and the next school was lined up wherever they were. But my high school was an integrated high school, but the orchestra was orchestra stuff. They were not uh, overwhelmed with the African American in numbers or the minorities in numbers, no. Right. So there's, you know, 40, 40 kids playing instruments at the school seriously, and you know, 35 of them are white, and the, it's the white kids that get to go be in the eight-piece band that plays at the PTA meeting? Well, I wasn't concerned with the numbers. I just knew that I wasn't counted among them. Right. How did you feel about classical music when you were a teenager? I, I imagine that's what you were playing in, in orchestra. I thought it was great. What, I couldn't comprehend how they could write these sounds and everyone play the right notes. I mean, I shouldn't still be in music and taking lessons. But for someone to sit down and really compose these tremendous pieces that had 100 people playing at the drop of a baton, so to speak, have it sound so well thought out and well organized, so well rehearsed, so well known, so well respected and envied, it was just an amazing thing to see as a 13 or 14-year-old. You know, as a non-musician, as you describe that, like, <laughs> I understand what you mean so profoundly. <laughs> Like, there is something kind of of a marvel about a symphony that someone conceived of this whole thing with so many pieces that fit together. And leaving aside the question of whether it's a compelling melody or, a, you know, the basic things that affect people about music, you're just like, wow, somebody, somebody knew what to tell all these different kinds of instruments what to do. Yes, that's exactly right. And they did it. Without, without complaint, night in and night out. And they got paid. 
What did you most like to listen to when you were a teenager? Classical music. Were you listening on the radio? Were you? Did you have records? Well, on radio, and they would take us to get in the bus and go to the Kobo Hall, wherever it was called back in the Detroit day, to those concerts, and we'd sit in the, in the audience and listen to the Detroit Symphony Orchestra play a concert, a partial concert. And occasionally they would come to the junior high school or the high school and play a little concert and have them get up before the bus got turned off and somebody stole the bus, you know. Did your friends think classical music was corny? I don't know what they thought. I didn't ask their opinion. I thought I liked the music. I was practicing to be as good as I could. I got a little ink and paper that would promise me that I was, if I kept practicing, I would get better. And that didn't work out to be the case. Having said that, I didn't ask my peers' opinion. I'm listening to the music. I'm listening to what's going on. I'm watching the numbers go up and down. I'm listening to the calls go out. I'm listening to who's in what orchestra, who's got this gig, and I'm noticing my name and number didn't come up. Even more with Ron Carter after the break. We'll be back in a minute. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with bassist Ron Carter. He's performed with Miles Davis, Chico Hamilton, Chet Baker, and innumerable others. Let's get back into our conversation. When did you start working as a musician? Uh, I started playing at 11 or 12, so I would say 12. (laughs) (laughs) When did you start getting gigs? When did you start getting paid, and and what were you playing? Uh, I was playing jazz, and uh, the summer of my first return to Detroit from during school, uh, summer between the spring semester and the fall semester, spring, spring, summer break, school was over. I came back to Detroit to do a uh, work a day job so I could afford to go back to school the following fall. And one of my neighbors was a saxophone player who was into, who, who was working for the summer, putting together groups to play for Wayne State University sorority and, and frat groups for the uh, summer parties and dances and stuff like that. And he asked me that I want to make some money for the summer. I said, well, I, I have to make summer. That's why I'm here for the summer, to make money so I can go back to school in the fall. Having said, he said, well, I got some records for you here. Take a listen to it and tell me what you think, you know. So I did. And I said, well, you know, I understand that it works. I don't know how it works, and I'm not sure how I could help it work, but I'm interested to see what it is, and if I can work with you, I'd have to do that and get better. That was my first summer gig. So you were like... 17, 18, 19 years old. This was after your first year of music college? Yeah, probably 18, late 18, going on 19, yeah. Were these like party gigs? Um, more like dances, not less, not necessarily party in terms of how we define party today, yeah. Mm-hmm. So were you playing, uh, were you playing with big, with big groups or? No, no, only a quartet. Small groups or? A quartet. At the time, Dave Brubeck had a hot record and, uh, this person liked Dave Rubeck and liked, liked Chet Baker. And uh, so the band was kind of settled around those, those leader-led bands in the library that they were well known for. What did you have to learn to do that? The libraries. Whatever their famous tunes were, whatever song this guy liked of Chet Baker's, whatever they thought Paul Desmond sounded really great at their libraries, whatever that was, yeah. What did you have to learn, like as a player like beyond just the literal you had to learn the songs like what did you have to learn to go from playing in an orchestra to 
playing in a combo for a dance. And I was the only bass player doing this. In the orchestra, you got six people playing the same notes, like it or not. In a small group, I'm the guy. And I still feel like that. I am the guy. I'm controlling everything but the salary. And if I get really good, then I can start to do that. Hmm. Was that exciting? It still is. To know that one note I played does so much for a band, I love that kind of responsibility, and I'm getting better at it. Was it revelatory for you? Like, when you started doing it, did you think, oh, this is going to be my life? Or did that realization come on slowly? It came on much later. Uh, I'm in college now since it was 1959 or so. I graduated from my undergraduate school, and um, I'm playing in the the Philharmonic Orchestra at that time in my undergrad school, and... and, uh, a very famous conductor walks up to me and says, you know, young man, I, I watch you play, I hear you play well. I'd like you to go to my orchestra where I'm conducting, but they're not ready for a colored person to be in the orchestra right now. So to answer your question, that statement. And he said it to you in so many words? No, 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 those are the words. I, I didn't count them all, but in so many words, okay. So in a way, this career path wasn't a choice that you made. It was a choice that the circumstances of America in 1959 made for you. Yes. Having said that, I was working at a a jazz club on weekends, again, to make sure I had money for the coming term and book costs. And I was in a house band for a small club outside of Rochester, New York, where there was the... the, uh, transportation route from Canada to New York City that jazz bands took to get from traveling on the road back to New York. And being in a house band, I played among uh, opposite and with many of the famous, really famous jazz guys who were traveling through Rochester to get to New York. Sometimes they would come as a single, like Sonny Stitt. Sometimes they would come as a group, and I'd be the bass player who would fill in the group. And each of these groups told me that they thought that New York always needed a good bass player and that I might fulfill that role if I came to New York. So after I was being told in so many words that I didn't really count that uh, a classical orchestra was not ready to have people of my ethnic hue, I'm hearing from these guys that, man, the New York wants a good bass player. I felt I, I felt I could fulfill that role. So when I cut my sheepskin and everything, the ink got dry and I found a small suitcase to go to New York, I packed up my stuff, my wife, and left for New York, August of 1959. Have you ever wondered whether, you know, had you been 15 years younger or 20 years younger and had been on that same path, whether you would have had a career as a classical musician and that jazz would still be something you did in the evenings as a job? to make a little extra money on the side? No, I, I didn't feel like that. I was going to either do one or not do it. And when the classical personnel managers decided who would qualify for the orchestra, this ensemble set up next to a, a jazz group who was saying to me, if you play good, you can work in New York. The choices are pretty simple to me. I didn't think I was... Um, Wasted my time playing classical music. I learned a whole lot as I still use most of those things as I'm a fledgling jazz player. 
I think now that I'm really too old to kind of break that mold of one of the first of people, I'm kind of a little past that stage in my career, unless I could be called the guy who played in tune every night. If I can be <laughs> called that, that's good for me. It must have been a relief when you started playing jazz as your main thing, when you mostly left aside classical music to no, no, not no, no, have no, no, to... wait, wait. That was my only thing. They told me that they weren't interested. Jazz was, yeah, I was, they were telling me, hey man, you're a nice kid, you pat me on the head, but we're not ready for people who look like your complexion. So what alliance would I have to that kind of concept? I left it twice. No. Hmm. I missed the music. I missed the camaraderie that I developed in those groups. But I, I love where I am. I like being the only bass player in the band. I was thinking it must have been a relief to no longer be, you know, so to speak, like fighting a war on two fronts, right? That you are, you are working to be a great musician. You are also having to work on you know, whether you as a black guy are even welcome, right? When you were playing classical music, whether, you know, who around you was judging you, who around you felt like you should or should not be there must have been a constant hassle in your life when you were playing classical music. And, you know, when you went out to play in a jazz combo with mostly African-American players, that wasn't one of the things you had to worry about. You could just worry about making great music. You know, uh, you guys answer, ask 12 questions per paragraph, and I never feel like I can answer <laughs> each of them adequately because they're already gone by the time I get to, the, to the, the crux of the matter. If you can see some of those questions and fewer questions, I can really give you a much better answer than I'd say, well, gee, man, you know, hey, man, I, 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 got I know some sure. answers, but you ask me, you, you break it down for me in a much Less, Let me uh, try again, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. okay, good. Give it a shot. Was it a relief? No, no, not yet. <laughs> okay, come on, man. Was it a relief when you started playing exclusively jazz that you could focus on music, you no longer had to worry about, or to the same extent had to worry about? They stopped there. I never felt that I was going to be on a crusade against the people and the, or the music or the proprietors, the hirers of the music who told me twice that they were not ready to accept a person of my hue. I don't care. I don't carry that burden. Having said that, I still feel I didn't get a chance to do what I thought I was put here to do, play classical cello. Having said that, the community that welcomed me I never noticed that they were all black people. I just said, these guys want me to play with them. I love that. The classical community was not telling me that. And while I remember that, I'm not letting it be my flag to carry as an example. There are other people before me, guys, who had the same issues. I, I would name them if they were still on the planet, but I know who they are. I'm satisfied that I'm not the only one who had this burden, had this disappointment in their life placed on their laps. I'm not the only guy, man. 
And clearly not the first, because if you look at the pictures of the orchestra personnel in the past 10 years with the top six or seven orchestras, I doubt that the proportion of minority or people of color would be the same as it would be if they were more open and more actively pursuing talent of the uh, darker community. But they still graduate them to play in orchestras. Period. I'll say that it seems to me as an outsider, like playing in clubs with jazz bands would be more fun than playing in orchestras. Man, you don't know what it is then. You can't imagine being one of seven people playing the same notes with the same fingering, with the same tuxedo, with the same white bow tie and white tails, and watching this one person in front of you with, with a stick wave his hands like he's having a heart attack. Everyone follows his attempted beat, and the sound is fantastic. Man. <laughs> the only thing that's close to that is playing with a great trio, where everyone's on the same radar screen, everyone's got the same choice of note, they make their choices. All of a sudden, we're into another level of performance. Incredible. They're very different things, right? But they're both about something similar, which is that feeling of connection with the other people on stage. We got the same notes, man. The difference is I can pick them when I want to pick them. And I love that option. For just to say, I can't play their choices. Doesn't say I don't want to play their choices. I'm saying I have this line of work because my choices and my presence was not what the personnel director decided fit the complexion, so to speak, of their of their orchestras. Right. The jazz guys, I know, hey, man, you play good? You know this tune? You want to play this tune? They didn't say, hey, man, what color are you? Do you know Beethoven fit? No, they said, hey, man, this is a song for that. Play this. I said, okay, I can do that. And I did it, as I've been trying to do since 1955 or so. When you showed up in New York City, coming downstate from Rochester, mm -hmm. they had said... Everybody always needs a good bass player. Yes. Was it true? Well, I'm still working. <laughs> well, you are now. <laughs> but where were you at when you showed up in town with your cardboard suitcase and your and your your bass and a thing on wheels, you know? My first gig was Chico Hamilton. And I was going to be hired as a cello player, but the cello player decided he was going to stay. And the bassist, Wyatt Ruth, decided he wanted to go back home to Seattle and spend his time there. So Chico said, well, hey, man, can you, you still playing bass? Yes. Join the bass player. Join the band as a bass player. I did. With Eric Dolphy on saxophone and flute, Dennis Buttermere on guitar, and Nat Gershman, a cellist who was in the band at the time, and Chico. that you were playing with great players? I know they were good players. I don't know what great meant at that time, so I don't know. I mean, I think to some extent, <laughs> to some extent you have a feeling like we're doing something important or like these dudes are for real 
but maybe you just felt like, hey, this works and we're getting jobs. Well, I, I didn't feel we were. I felt Chico Hamilton was getting jobs. Right. And I was being hired as a side man to accompany him in this, as he got the jobs, because I helped him fill the reasons why people hired this band that he was leading. Did I think I was making some wonderful music? I didn't understand what that meant other than I was learning songs, I was developing my skill. That's the way I, I was deciding where to play these notes on the bass. I was deciding at that point I needed maybe a little better instrument because this wasn't enough of what I thought I'd hear. I didn't understand the rules of the game. Of, uh, do I need an accountant? Do I need to get a, a car to get from point A to point B? I learned all those things. And I was getting better at playing the bass at the same time. What were the things that you had to get better at, given that your so much of your background was in playing in an orchestra? What, what were the skills that weren't as refined for you when you started playing jazz full-time? In an orchestra, you play what they tell you to play. In a jazz band, after you play the basic format, you're kind of on your own to play what you think the next choices are. So you have to do two things. Have some choices and through and know when the best choice is to play it. I'm still learning that part. To what extent were you excited about the fact that in a jazz combo you got to make your own path? And to what extent were you scared about the fact that you were in a jazz combo and there wasn't a conductor telling you what to do? I was not afraid. I thought my job was to keep the time and I learned how to do that. I was not afraid because I thought we were, for however our experience level was, and I was not the most experienced guy in the quartet of quintet, as it turned out. I'm in a position to be a student. And I've never been afraid of being a student. That's how I got better. That's how I learned more. Understanding that there's more to learn, and these three professors who were in front of me, or four professors, they're the ones right now who are teaching me in their classroom. Why would I fear that, man? You've been teaching for a really long time. You know, you've been teaching nearly as long as you've been playing. Yes. When you're teaching young bassists, other than matters of technique, other than, you know, bend your finger this way or you want to, <laughs> I was, I was going to say like a, a music thing, like you want to move an eighth up or something. I don't know enough about uh, That's okay. Go ahead. Uh, bass playing technique, yeah. but I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So other than that kind of stuff, what do you find is like the most useful thing to help a young player understand? As a bass player or as a musician? As a bass player and musician. They're separate things right now in this, in this discussion. As a bass player, I would tell my students, as I have done before, when you get a call to go to work, leave your ego at home and take a spare pair of ears. Leaving your ego at home means to me you're so intent on doing what your thing is, whatever that is, that the panorama of sound of choices you have from the other members in the band is no longer your concern. And that can't be the case if you want to work the following night with this band or the, or the following set. New York's got a reputation of the band changing personnel in the middle of a chorus. <laughs> you know, that happens as the rumor goes, you know. As a musician, I try to have the bass player understand that if the next 
60 minutes, you're part of a community. And in this community, everyone has a voice. Saxophone, horn, trumpet, piano. Your job is kind of understand the language with which they're speaking their point of view. And if you can help them either by changing their point of view, by the notes you play, if you can help them change their point of view by the direction of your beat, because you think they could be more productive following your beat or your chords, then you have to take that chance and try to make that part of the process. You won't always guess right, because the options are tremendous, but to not to make that choice. And with it comes time for your solo to show what you can do, like you're missing the fun of being a really good bass player, of having fun, knowing you have these options, and you have the capacity to change the direction of music with a certain set of notes. I've been fortunate to experience that two or three times in my short career, and what a great feeling that is. It sounds like I hear you describing parts of the job of being a musician being important to you that are like the things you might call being a pro. Like you seem like the kind of man who is serious about showing up on time, doing a good job of your job, being supportive to your colleagues, those kinds of things. Yes, I'm, I'm trying to be all of those. Not every talented musician values those things equally. So what's it like for you, a guy who really cares deeply about that stuff, when you find yourself playing with people who are talented, whose talent and skill you value and respect, but who don't share the same reverence for whatever it is, showing up on time or being ready when the bell rings, you know? Um, to, the, to your question, I try to answer, answer this kind of question and not sound like it's all about me. But your question kind of puts it in that zone, so I, I try to tackle it and not feel uncomfortable. If I can use a quote from a friend of mine who was doing an interview some time ago about his relationship to me in the studio making records. She said, look, when Ron Carter walks into the room, the musical integrity goes up 75%. <laughs> and I shall leave my answer right there. So I'll leave it right there. We'll finish up with Ron Carter in just a minute. After the break, we'll talk about the time he played bass for A Tribe Called Quest on their legendary album Low End Theory and how he gave them the business about their foul language. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Grammy award-winning bassist Ron Carter, one of jazz's greatest living musicians. He's played on iconic records with artists like Miles Davis, Aretha Franklin, Alice Coltrane, and many more. Later this month, he'll celebrate his 85th birthday at Carnegie Hall. Let's get back into our conversation. You've played on thousands of records. A significant majority of those are jazz records, but by no means all of them. And I'm a big hip-hop fan, and I think you playing on the Tribe Called Quest album, Low End Theory, is like a very important symbolic thing in hip-hop history. 
be the prime example A deeper still the sample Insignificance Here I place you on the mantle Born up in Harlem Reside now in Jamaica The girl I used to rock it's something that people talk about, and it's not just because it's a, you know, it's a good track on a good record. When you got the phone call from, I'm guessing, Q-Tip, who did a lot of the production on that record and was a, one of the rappers in A Tribe Called Quest, had you ever heard of the man? No. So how did you figure out whether to take the job? I talked to my son, who was into that music way before I was. He said, Dad, that's one of the guys who belong to this group called a Tribe Called Quest. And I think that you'd like the music they have a chance to make if you play with them. So I said, well, that's good enough for me. So I returned this call and I told him, uh, I might be available. Let's try to work out the time frame, see if I am available. And we did. When you went in, what did you and Q-Tip talk about in terms of what you wanted to do? Not knowing any of the musicians personally and their personalities and not knowing if they understood my kind of dry wit or when I'm being really serious, I explained to them that I had heard a few of the records made by groups like theirs, not theirs, like theirs, and I I objected to their language skills and their social point of view. And if I felt that I was going to be playing on music who did those two things that I object to, I can assure you that my car is parked right outside with the key in the ignition, and I'm ready to go home. See that sign, E-X-I-T? I know what that means. If you want to know what I think it means, you give me those two things I don't want to hear, and I'll show you what E-X-I-T means. And they understood the human, but they knew I meant it. <laughs> and I guess Tip was probably 24 years old or something like that, 22 years old. <laughs> I was treating him like an adult, man. You know, I treated him like an For adult. Sure. Yeah. And he understood that. This elderly gentleman here with a full beard and wearing these glasses and a quarter-inch <laughs> stick, he means what he says. And he plays so good that we will tolerate his words, distaste, and not do that. I don't know if that was his commentary to himself, but clearly he thought that my importance was enough that my idiosyncratic, not the taste for some of the record language skills I heard that I commented that I wouldn't find acceptable for me to be a part of. They could work around that. They, would not have, they didn't have to do that to be famous or, or, or get more listeners. And I meant it. I, I was feeling that if they want me to play on this record, they must know some of what I have done and some of my history. And I thought that if I could help them trust my sense of the right sound the right key, the right zone for the bottom of, the bottom part of this record to sound great because of my choice of notes and my use of space. To trust my judgment to do this, we can have a nice time. So I asked him, just read the, read the poem to me, read the line so I understand where you're breathing and where are your highs and low emotions at this, at this uh, reading of what you're going to do for me. And I'll try to make the bass accompany not just you while you're playing, but you while you're not saying anything. I'm really good at filling spaces, man. Let's get this party started. And the rest is history. Well, Ron Carter, thanks so much for taking all this time uh, to come on Bullseye. It was really nice to get to talk to you. Well, thank you for understanding a guy who's got these quarter-inch thick glasses and he's got a gray beard. 
but it's nice to have an open conversation, and I hope you don't edit out some of my comments that you find maybe not the tenor or the alto of the, of the show, you know. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time. I really do appreciate it. You're welcome. Ron Carter. If you're in New York City and you want to have a good time, his 85th birthday celebration is at Carnegie Hall on Tuesday, May 10th. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here at my house, I've been filling those reusable shopping bags with grapefruits and hanging them from my fence. And uh, yesterday, somebody just took a full bag of grapefruits. And I'm just like, more power to them. <laughs> Take those grapefruits. I have three trees. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio, Valerie Moffitt, and Richard Roby. A big welcome to Tabitha Myers, our newest production fellow at MaximumFun.org. Special thanks to Tucker Dalton at CBM Studios in New York for recording our interview with Ron Carter. Thanks also to Alan Alda for recording himself at his home. He did a great job. We get booking help on the show from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation, written and recorded by the Go Team, thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for sharing it with us. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us there, give us a follow, and we'll share with you all our interviews. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.